Well, you should have a set of notes, I hope. And uh, we are on chapter 4 of the book of Exodus. So if you'd turn there, book of chapter 4 of Exodus. Just to remind you, uh, and I hate to belabor this, but we only have about 20 spots left. And we're going to close registration on the 20th. Uh, we've limited it to 200 uh, for Dan Wallace. And again, Iron to Iron, this ministry is sponsoring this event. It's on October the 28th. There's no cost, and it's open to men and women. So um, I'd encourage you to have a speaker of this caliber in our midst. Uh, in fact, I received a phone call from a friend from another state and said, you're having Dan Wallace come? Is there any way I can attend? I said, well, not really. It's not open to you. <laughs> so uh, catch the video. Uh, so uh, Dan uh, said, he said, I'll come and I'll speak. He said, what, you know, 75 minutes? I said, as long as you want. He said, well, then we're going to do Q&A, right? I said, if you want. He said, absolutely. So I mean, he's not afraid to, to ask tough questions. He's not afraid to, to interact with those tough questions. So um, he's going to be addressing how we know what we have in the New Testament today is what was written 2,000 years ago. Was it, is this reliable? And so if you know some folks who are struggling, bring them along. Uh, I already have a friend who's coming who has a doctorate from Harvard who believes most of the New Testament is not uh, accurate. And he said, can I come? And I, he says, is this just for evangelicals? I said, it's for anybody. Love to have you. He said, great, I'll be there. So he's coming. So uh, invite some folks to come along. But anyway, Exodus chapter 4, that's a dig in. Again, that registration is online and it is free. Can't beat it. And there's a dessert reception too. So there you are. And coffee, because I know you all like to drink. All right, Exodus chapter 4, verse 1. Moses answered again. If you recall, we are at the burning bush. This is part 2. Uh, in fact, last week we commented, and it's that first paragraph in your notes, there's this interchange between God and Moses. It's the first time in the text, in the Old Testament, that Moses and God interact. Or I should say God comes down, he, he interacts with Moses. And in this interchange, we've talked about this, that Moses is commissioned three times, four times he's told to go, right, in the text. And Moses will raise five objections, the first three, which is in chapter three, were fairly plausible. But by the time we get to five, God is less than happy, right? <laughs> He's, in fact, it's the first time in the Bible we see God angry at an individual. It's one of the few times. People groups, yes, but to, of an individual, it's rare. It's not even said of Cain, which is amazing, but it's said of Moses. So look at the text. Moses answered again, and if they do not believe or pay attention to me, who's he referring to, the Israelites and the Egyptians, really? The Lord has not appeared to you, but more so the Israelites. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a rod. The Lord said, throw it to the ground. Well, this would be your shepherd's staff. Remember, he's shepherding, and it's an Egyptian that would be very taboo. That's like, I don't know, uh, it's the bottom of the barrel when it comes to occupations, equivalent to being a lawyer today. No, uh, that's awful. Uh, where's my law? Jason Reese, is he here today? No, okay. Razzing him. Okay. The Lord said, throw it to the ground. So he threw it to the ground. It became a snake. It's interesting. In the Hebrew, it's often the word for cobra. 
And cobras were known in this region. And we'll talk about that in a minute, why that's so significant. And Moses fled. That's exactly what I do, <laughs> right? Especially when he doesn't have a staff to beat it off, kill it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and grab it by the tail. Anyone work with snakes? <laughs> do you grab them by the tail? You do? Oh, not me. Oh, good for you guys. That's not where I grab. Uh, and he put out his hand and watch. This, this is where it, it's great to know the original language. It says he caught it. That's not the same term as what God told him to grab it. Caught it is something that, that indicates great caution. <laughs> Timid. And yes, I'd be the same. He became a rod in his hand that they may believe that the Lord, now watch this, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham. Does this sound familiar? This is the fifth time in Exodus 3 and 4 that God's stating, I am the, father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's a broken record. Why? What did we say? What's the significance of declaring he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? The promises. What else? Promises he's made with his people. What else? Promises that what? Thus far he has kept, right? When only has to rehearse the life of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? What else? What else does this indicate? What did we say? I know it's early. There's more coffee up here. Help yourself, by the way. Don't, don't feel you have to sit quietly. Uh, it indicates his sovereignty, doesn't it? Yeah, I saw, where's a hand? I saw a hand. Where's the voice? Yes, Jeff. I was just going to say, um, if they had to repeat it, definitely God wants everybody to hear it and kind of breathe into it. Yeah, that's the problem Moses is having right now. He's not trusting the Lord. We'll get to this in a minute, but that's a great point. And notice it says, I'm the God of Jacob has appeared to you. The Lord said to him, so, okay, sign number one. Let me give you two more. Here's the second sign. The Lord said to him, put your hand into your robe. So he put his hand into his robe, probably behind the, the first layer of clothing that he's wearing. And when he brought it out, the hand was leprous like snow. Uh, probably not leprosy as we know it, some type of skin disease. We'll talk about this. And he said, put your hand back into your robe. So he put his hand back into his robe. And when he brought it out, it was restored like the rest of his skin. If they do not believe you or pay attention to the former sign, then they may believe the latter sign. If they do not believe even these two signs or listen to you, then take some water from the Nile, pour it out on the ground. The water that you will take out of the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. The first two signs, they're done immediately. The third sign is for the future. In fact, it's plague number one, right? It's plague number one. Then Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not, <laughs> I am not an eloquent man. So far, he's proving to be quite eloquent as he argues with the Lord. <laughs> and it's interesting in the Hebrew, it's literally heavy-tongued. And we'll talk about what type of deficiency he thinks he has in speech. Neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant, for I am slow of mouth and slow of tongue. No one else in Scripture observes that. Moses is the only one who acknowledges that he has this supposed deficiency. The Lord said to him, who gave you a mouth? 
Or who gave, it's literally, who places a mouth on a man and a face? Who makes a person mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is not I the Lord? So now go and I will be with your mouth and I will teach you what you must say. But Moses said, and here's the last objection. Oh, my Lord, please send anyone else (laughs) whom you wish to send. Anyone else, but not me. The Lord became, and here it is, angry with Moses. He said, what about your brother Aaron the Levite? I know that he can speak very well. Moreover, he's coming to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad. Why is he glad? Not because he finally sees his little baby brother. That's not it. Why is he glad? What's the news? Redemption is here, right? The exodus is about to occur. God is going to restore his people to the land or bring them back, take them out of Egypt. So you are to speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And as for me, I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and I will teach you both what you must do. He will speak for you to the people, and it will be as if he were your mouth and as if you were his God. You will also take in your hand this rod with which you will do the signs. It's a bit of a sad commentary on Moses at this point, to be quite honest. Uh, After uh, God has been patient, uh, but as you see in the text, by the time we get to the fifth objection, God says, enough. You're going. Lump it. I'll get you an assistant, but you're going. I've told you four times, I'm not wasting my breath. You're going, right? Interesting, as we look at this first part in your notes, I've called it God demonstrates his sufficiency. It's interesting as we look at this, God has already promised something to Moses. Look at chapter 3, verse 18. Let's just review because it's vital to the discussion in 4. In 3.18, the elders will listen to you. That is the Israelite elders, probably something like a Sanhedrin, a, a group of religious leaders. And it says... The elders of Israel must go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of Hebrews, has met with Moses, us. Don't miss that. That's vital. That's key. So now let us go three days into... Who's speaking here? Moses? The elders, right? And the elders are saying, we recognize that God has sent Moses to us and we are doing this. Now, notice what Moses states in chapter 4, verse 1. Moses answered, And if they do not believe me or pay attention to me, Moses, what did God tell you in chapter 3, verse 18? In your notes, one commentator, that is Riken, in his commentary on Exodus, which is a great read, by the way. It's, um, it's a doorstopper. It's about that thick. Um, it's more devotional in nature, and it's just, it's just spectacular. He's currently the president of Wheaton. And he writes, Moses' objection would be persuasive were it not for the fact that it was an explicit contradiction of God's word, a denial of divine revelation. The Lord already said, I, this is who I am, and I am with you, and they will accept it. And Moses says, well, what if they don't accept it? <laughs> 
you think the burning bush would have sufficed, right? <laughs> All right. The problem is I look at my own life and I think through the past where God has said, you know, this is what's, you know, I'm with you. I'm, I'm going to provide. I'm going to take care of you. And yet I find myself, you know, oh, that's too convicting. Let's move on. Back in Exodus, Riken writes, 3.18, God made this promise. The elders of Israel listened to you. God not only promised that the elders who believed Moses, but he also promised that they would make his testimony their own. When they went to Pharaoh, they would say, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. That's key, isn't it? So already in the first objection, or this, th- this fourth objection, we see Moses not believing a God of promise. And that's why I think, again, five times God says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm a God who keeps his promise. I've done it in the past. I'll do it in the future. And Moses says, well, I I don't know. Have you forgotten what he told you? I am. Right? It's eternal. He was there in the past. He's there in the future. He's already there. I am. And so the second thing we see is then this Lord, the Lord gives Moses three signs to expel doubt. I don't know about you, but God's pretty gracious with Moses, isn't he? Uh, I mean, it's only in the, the fifth objection that God says enough. Yeah, Kyle. You get a little bit of Jeremiah. Jeremiah echoes, by the way, much of this dialogue. Uh, It's interesting. If you did a little study, in fact, if you want to do something on your own, is to look at God's encounter with Jeremiah and his objections. And and to me, Jeremiah had it far worse than Moses. Moses was told the people would accept him. Jeremiah was told the people would not accept you, right? Moses got to marry. Jeremiah had to stay single. (laughs) I mean, there's a whole host of things. Yeah. Well, God is gracious, and and and, and that's part of the message here. Uh, <clears throat> the Pentateuch, don't miss it. You know, I hear people say, "Oh, well, the God of the Old Testament, He's harsh, He's mean. It's not like the God of the New." There is grace written all over these pages in the Old Testament, isn't there? Now look at the Pentateuch. God's grace. He's a holy God, and yet He is stepped down and allowed his people to enter into his presence, maybe through a high priest, but they're allowed to come to him, right? That, that's, that's incredible. You don't want to miss that. Well, let's look at the signs because this is where it gets really interesting, all right? And there's a lot we could say with it. I want to be careful we don't read too much into the text, all right? So if I cross the line, uh, you can just shoot me, right, Dick? All right, you can shoot me. All right, here we go. First sign. The first sign is the rod. And as I said, the term later in chapter 7, do you remember the rod turns into a snake again? Remember that one with the magicians? Their rods turn into snakes and uh, Moses' rod eats them. Uh, That term is definitely the word used for cobra. It's probably the same. It's a different Hebrew term, but most scholars would argue this is probably uh, an Egyptian cobra. Uh, known throughout this region. So I don't know about you, but I certainly would have fled. (laughs) Seeing that sucker in front of me? Uh, Yes. Uh, The cobra was considered extremely dangerous. Well, thank you, Hafeditz. I got up at 
6 in the morning. Did you tell me that? Yeah. But here's the significance. In the Egyptian culture, the cobra was extremely important. The fact that the picture to the far right and the top, that's Tutankhamun. You remember the treasures that were found, right? I know none of us were alive in the 1920s, but we've, we've maybe you saw the Chicago exhibit or you've been to Egypt. Um, they now have a new museum, the old archaeological museum. I called it call, uh, piling higher and deeper. It was a horrible museum. <laughs> they had stuff stored everywhere. But you go into the room with the Tutankhamun and you see this mask and at the top is a cobra. It was the sign of Lower Egypt. Eventually, the Pharaoh wore two. And you'll see there's actually two little creatures on Tutankhamun. One is representing Upper Egypt, and the other is the cobra, which represents Lower Egypt. Lower Egypt is where the Egyptians dwelt. That's the land of Goshen. It was the sign of authority, a sign of power, and a sign of protection, all rolled into one. And so the pharaoh that I have down at the bottom is, only has the cobra, and that would be the sign of um, Lower Egypt. So in your notes, I mentioned there are two particular gods associated with the cobra, the Renetet is used as the guardian of the pharaoh. You often see this in uh, frescoes, uh, paintings uh, in their tombs. And that's the backdrop of that is you, you see two cobras and it's a sign of protection. Uh, of all the things to have protect you, a cobra ought to do it, uh, right? And then you had the widget or the, the uris, which is the headpiece, all right? So when this turns into a cobra, I find it very interesting, this rod. Because to the Egyptians, that's the sign of authority. That's a sign of protection. And, and even the staff was often carved as a cobra. And so for Moses' staff to eat in chapter 7, the magician's staffs that also turned into snakes... Uh, it's a message of power and authority, right? I am in charge. Uh, Paul was mentioning in F.F. Bruce's commentary, F.F. Uh, Bruce uh, lays out several possible symbolisms associated with the rod, but certainly the rod was used for, for protection, for identity, et cetera, et cetera, and that could be played out here as well. But it's what he has in his hand, Right, it's it's his it's it's his toolbox, right? And now it's useless, and in fact, it's become very dangerous. And God says, "Look, I'm in charge here." But again, the use of the snake isn't just to scare Moses. I think it's it's also symbol symbolizing what's going to happen to Egypt. I'm in charge of of all, and I am the God of the universe. Questions on this? This is huge. Very important. We aren't going to go through the 12 plagues, but you've probably heard this already, that most of the plagues are associated with the deities of Egypt. They worship frogs, etc., etc. I know, it's crazy, right? Uh, cats. I love cats. They taste a lot like chicken. But anyways, <laughs> anyway, you got it. <laughs> okay, moving along. The second sign, and I'm sorry, I hope you already had your donut. Uh, some type of skin disease. 
most scholars are saying it's probably not leprosy as we know it, but it's some type of skin disease. But here's the interesting part. At the top of page two, skin diseases were often associated with a punishment for pride. You realize that? Think it out through the Old Testament. Uh, and just ask Moses later. Yeah, his sister, right? <laughs> right? She gets in trouble. Well, again, there are scholars, I've seen people try to read too much into the symbolism. I'm not going to go too far. I I do mention the sign, this is in the top of your notes, most likely demonstrated God's intention to punish Pharaoh. It's a foreshadowing. This is going to happen. Could be. Uh, And that is, by the way, how a lot of rabbinic Jewish writings interpret this whole event is that it's a foreshadowing what's going to happen to Pharaoh. All right, so that's the second one. Again, that was the first was that which is useful becomes useless. This one is that which is healthy becomes sick or decaying, dying, right? And then the third sign is the one that we know uh, in the plague number one, and that is to, yet to take place, and that's turning the Nile into blood. And anyone who knows anything about Egyptology knows that the Nile was the source of life. That's, that's where it was, right? Uh, in fact, it is even today. Uh, most people live, if you get too far off away from the Nile, uh, there's no civilization. It's green throughout, and then it's desert right over the hills. Um, <clears throat> and so there in your notes, I mentioned this, is the significance of that event. So three signs God takes or Moses, and he says, listen, I'm in charge. Here it is. Boom, boom, boom. Questions or comments on those signs? They else want to highlight these three? And of course, signs and wonders are interesting throughout Scripture. Uh, it's an indication that God is, is moving and His, his um, storyline is changing. What do I mean by that? We see this here in the Exodus. We'll see it again during the prophets. We'll see it when Christ comes to earth the first time. Signs and wonders, the establishment of the church, and we'll see it in the end times. So there's these unusual outpourings where God is is trying to, hey, wake up, I want your attention, I'm moving. Uh, We're we're changing some things here and moving forward in the history books, the storyline. Well... Unfortunately, the three signs were unsuccessful. And I don't know about you, but after having seen my rod turn into a cobra, that would have done it. Uh, Leprosy would have scared me to death. Um, The Nile and the blood, okay, fine. We'll get to that later, Lord. But the first two should have sufficed, right? Moses said, verse 10, Oh, my Lord, I am not an eloquent man. (laughs) This is interesting, and scholars debate exactly what does it mean that Moses is deficient in speech. There are three theories. They're in your notes there, but the first of these is that he has a speech defect of some sort. Many would argue that hold to this position, he stuttered, the heavy tongue. Uh, Possibly. The second is that he's uncomfortable speaking in public. 
And really the fears have just gotten the best of him. That's why he doesn't want to do it. And the third is that he's, he's lost his fluency in the Egyptian language. After 40 years, ah, you know, I don't speak it like I used to. So it's difficult. Can't do it. I think, based on the Lord's response in verse 11, look what the Lord says, which is also extremely powerful. The Lord says to him, who gave a mouth to a man a person, makes a person mute or deaf. Based on this, it would seem to suggest that Moses has a speech uh, a deficit. He has a speech problem. In your notes, and I've, there's a typo error there, so let me, that's not the book of Eek. Uh, that should be Ezekiel, E-Z-E-K there under the Lord's response, verse 11. So there is no book of Eek. Uh, when I teach Greek, I give my students, you don't give them a text from the New Testament because their memory can kick in. So you, I give them a book of hesitations. But uh, this is not, this is not uh, a book either. So uh, it should be Ezekiel 3. Uh, and, and in that passage, by the way, the same phrase is used. The immediate context is they're not, you don't know the, the language as well as you used to. But the problem is it also talks about there seems to be a problem in pronouncing certain letters. So uh, many scholars would argue there is some type of speech defect that Moses is struggling with. Uh, whatever the case, the Lord has said, I'm calling you, right? <laughs> you can do this. And as I mentioned in your notes, Moses certainly has had no problem debating the Lord at this point. Uh, Moses, I mean... I don't know about you, I was always scared to talk to my professors. They always made me nervous, and I felt like I was a babbling fool in front of them trying to ask a question. Can you imagine talking to the Lord? And Moses seems to be able to carry his own quite well, right? Uh, reminds me of my daughter. Yes. Maybe he, as he just illustrated, he was afraid to go back. Well, and that could be. The, the, the fear has been driving this whole sequence of events. So yes, and that's where the fear of public speaking is also the fear of, of appearing before Pharaoh and what am I going to say? How am I going to say it? Um, in your notes, I also mentioned in Acts chapter 7, which is intriguing, when Stephen refers to Moses, notice what he says. It's there in your notes. He's powerful in speech and action. Who speaks to Pharaoh during the plagues? Aaron or Moses? Moses. Who speaks to the people? Who speaks about a golden calf? Aaron. One person said, one scholar, I love it. He said, Aaron had the golden tongue. He's also the one who created the golden calf. Aaron becomes a thorn in Moses' side in many ways. You want Aaron? Fine. Have at it. You're going to regret it. I don't know about you. You think about if, if I just trust the Lord here, I wouldn't be dealing with these issues here. The Lord says, fine, you're not going to trust me. You're going forward. I don't care what you like about it. You're doing it. I'll make these provisions, but you're not going to like it in the end. It would have been a far much easier road if you just listened to me the first time. Yeah, Paul. So David, last time he was in Egypt, of course, he left out of fear for his own life. And so now he's faced with God challenging him to go back to the same place that threatened his life, per se. And my question is, 
I think I find that piece would cause me to hesitate to some degree anyway. Do you think this was the same ruler in force when, when Moses came, when he returned to Egypt as it was when he left Egypt? No. I, this, the question is, is this the same Pharaoh that when Moses left 40 years ago? And I don't believe so at all. Uh, first of all, 40 is usually a generational time gap. Uh, I realize Ramses ruled longer than that, um, I believe. Um, I'm not an expert in Egyptology. But um, <clears throat> uh, this is not, I don't think this is the same Pharaoh. Uh, I think this is Amenhotep II. Um, now, if you take a 1200 dating on Exodus, and I know this is trivial, but if you take a 1200, you take Ramsey. It's not trivial, but it's secondary to what we're talking about this morning. If you take a 1400 dating, early dating, you hold to Amenhotep II, who I believe is the Pharaoh of the Exodus. I think I mentioned that to you, right? He was quite a warrior. I mean, he was a man's man. And then all of a sudden, he changes in depictions of, uh, in Egypt and hieroglyphics, etc. He's depicted as this mama's boy who loves poetry and art. If you remember, what happened to the Pharaoh of the Exodus? He died unexpectedly in a sea, right? So what does Egypt have to do? They have to quickly replace them. Most people never see the Pharaoh. Uh, and they want to make sure everything is copacetic. So it's interesting with Amenhotep II because you see two different Amenhotep IIs. And it's very interesting. So either he had a personality change or this is someone totally different. Um, anyway, that was trivial. Back to the text. That's far more significant. Um, you know, it's interesting as well, and, and I, I want to comment on this, and it's that long paragraph. For the Lord to say He's the God of suffering, it's a pretty difficult pill to swallow, at least it can be. And, and careful, the text is not saying there aren't some kinds of suffering, such as injuries, infections, and human sin that can occur. It's not talking about that. What it is trying to say here, and what I think the Lord is trying to say to, to Moses, is that ultimately, sovereignly, I'm in charge. I think that's what's going on here. And, and, and God is telling Moses, I don't care what your deficiency is, I can use you. Um, interesting, and this is in your notes as well, but Moses uses that first person pronoun, I am. I am slow of mouth and speech. And the Lord responds in 4.11 twice saying, I am the Lord and I am the one who's in charge. And it, 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 it should echo you back to chapter 3, where God says, I am. I'm the one, not you, Moses. You are not God. So stop objecting. I'm in charge, and this is it. Well, ultimately, Moses says in verse 13, I don't want to do it. <laughs> he says it in a nice way, but it's very clear. Yeah, And I think that's, that's what, if there is a speech problem, that's what could be driving this is, is why did you make me this way? Because uh, if you were, or probably better to say, Lord, you made me this way, so I can't do it, right? And we're going to talk about that in a minute here with application. In John chapter 9, do you remember the man born blind? And, and 
Even Jesus' disciples were asking, and the religious rulers were asking the same thing. Who sinned? This guy who's blind or his parents? Which is horrific. But I hear it in the church. Oh, they've got cancer. Well, you know, he, he did have... I mean, I heard this growing up because there was a guy who died of cancer in my church, and they said, well, you know, he did have extramarital affairs, so God judged him. Careful. We don't... Uh-huh. Or, or 9-11, well, it's the sin of America. Who has known the mind of the Lord? We have to be very careful because God says to the disciples, who sinned? No one. He's born blind so that I might be glorified. I love teaching that text at the Pool of Siloam. And I had a lady weeping as we were going through that text. Later, I found out she has a child that has Down syndrome. And she said, I know what that text means. I said, I bet you do, far better than I. And, and Moses, I don't care what your deficit is or your defects. I'm calling you to do this, and you will, <laughs> Right? Because I am. And I've kept my promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You think they were perfect? You know? Do you think they were a Rhodes Scholar? No, I don't think so. The next quarterback for the Colts? No, I don't think so. Whoever, I don't know. Yeah. Right? Well, let's go back to the text. And he says, I am. <clears throat> With no other excuse, Moses says, I don't want to go. And the Lord says, Fine. I'm calling Aaron your brother. And we we talked about the problems, but it's interesting. He's referred to as the Levite, isn't he? What tribe is Moses from? Well, obviously they're brothers. They're both Levites. They're both priests. Line is the Levites. Um, Some have argued because that's referred to, because yes, Aaron's a Levite. two, Two reasons. One is some scholars argue it's because he is greater than his equals. He is a Levite of Levites. I mean, this guy is, he's got the book of numbers memorized. No, it's not written yet, but you got the idea, right? Or uh, it could just simply foreshadow his role as high priest, which he will be as time progresses here in the text, all right? So it's hard to know, um, but did you, did you catch that in the text? Look at verse uh, 14. This is amazing. I about fell out of my chair. I don't know why I never saw this before. It says, moreover, he is coming. He's already coming. Isn't that like the Lord? Moses, you think you're one ahead of me? I'm already there. I am. I've already orchestrated this. I knew you were going to object, so I'm bringing Aaron to the equation that's really going to be a pain for you, but that's what you wanted, and I already know this, so here he comes. Isn't that great? It's amazing. Just like the Lord to, to move ahead. Well, we talked about being glad in heart, but the last thing I want you to see here in this passage, which just is humorous to me, the Lord says in verse 17, take your rod with you, Moses. Isn't that great? It's kind of like when you tell your kids to go to bed, if you've got kids and you say, now pick up, take the toys with you as you go up the stairs. Don't forget them. (laughs) Don't forget your rod, Moses. Why? It's a symbol of God's power, God's presence. And it was used, how was it used? Uh, Just thinking through the rest of the Exodus story, how is the rod used? Part of Red Sea, throwing his authority. 
water out of a rock, which was a problem. We'll get there later. <laughs> right? Poor Moses. That rod. <laughs> pain in the petunia. But he's got it. Uh, in your notes, uh, this rod symbolizes the fact that salvation comes from the Lord and only the Lord. Get your rod, Moses. Well, so, Hophidits, what does this have for us today? Let me give you three points to run with. Hang it on your beak and we'll get out of here. But first of all, the Lord knows the future. Everything happens according to His plan. Consequently, nothing happens that is outside of His plan. There a, was a movement that was quite popular. I think it's died a little bit, but it's, it was an evangelicalism called the openness of God. And the argument is with the openness of God that God is not all-knowing. He doesn't know. He's dependent on what human actions will occur. Well, as far as I'm concerned, you can take that in the backyard and shoot it and bury it. That is so foreign to a Jewish mindset in the first century. I could read to you from the, the Psalms, the songs that were sung uh, in Jewish literature that talk about God is in charge. He knows all things. But let me read to you Isaiah. Turn to Isaiah. Even in the Old Testament, the idea that God is not all-knowing, that's crazy. And I think Aaron coming just demonstrates God already knows. He's in charge. Isaiah 46, verse 8. Remember this so that you can be brave. <laughs> Moses, if you just remember, I'm in charge. I already know. All right? Think about this, you rebels. Remember what I accomplished in antiquity? Truly, I am God. I have no peer. I am God. No cobra goddess. No, there is none like me who announces the end from the beginning and reveals beforehand what has not yet occurred. Who says my plan will be realized? I will accomplish what I desire. No one. Right? Not Horus. Not Ra. None of the Egyptian gods can say this. Only God Almighty. I am. He's in charge. And based on that, Second thing to see is our imperfections, our excuses, <laughs> but our imperfections can become the means through which God's purpose will be advanced. I love it. That's what the lady shared with me sitting in the pool of Siloam with tears flowing from her eyes. She said, it has been very difficult having a child with Down syndrome, but she said, it has been so neat to see God glorified in our lives as a family and in our community. And I've had chances to share Christ I would never have had it had it not been because of what we have gone through. God being glorified. That's John 9. How much better, Moses, to know He can use you as His, God's mouthpiece, even with a defect, if that is indeed what He had. Stutter? No problem. You realize Chuck Swindoll stuttered? You know the name, right? Chuck Swindoll? He had to have speech therapy. <laughs> a man who's, who can wax eloquent. He stuttered. And finally, 
as believers, we need to avoid excuses. This goes without saying, right? And simply trust God as He guides and as He provides. Jeremiah 33 is a great example. I spent a long time cutting up 70 twigs, branches, and I was going to give each one of you one of those this morning. So, so much for best laid intentions. It may have been a little hokey, so I don't know. But I wanted to give you a piece of twig, a stick to stare at. And this is why. I wanted you to put it on your desk for a week and just think about it. If God can use a piece of wood, a rod, He can use us, right? Francis Schaeffer, you know the name, in a sermon, and this is from that, it's down at the bottom of your notes. Consider the mighty ways in which God used a dead stick of wood. God so used a stick of wood can, he, can be a banner cry for each of us. Though we are limited and weak in talent, physical energy, and psychological strength, we are not less than a stick of wood. But as the rod of Moses had to become the rod of God, so that which is me must become the me of God. In Christ is the idea there. Then I can become useful in God's hands. The scriptures emphasize that which can come from little if the little is truly consecrated to God. Give me 65 men that are sold out to the Lord. I don't care what your past is. I don't care what your defects are. Give me 65 men who are sold out to God and we'll turn Indianapolis, we'll turn the state, we'll turn the United States upside down. That's what we need. And that's why we do what we do here, by the way. The fellowship around God's word, keep it up. Keep it up. Um, invite more. <laughs> we should be busting these walls out. The opportunity to get together as a group of men. Yeah, Paul. David, do you see a correlation between the dead stick, stick of wood and the almond branch that then blossoms and becomes alive, ultimately into the Ark of the Covenant? There could be, yeah. I, if I can def interact with you later on that, that'd be the great. There's a lot of symbolism that could be drawn here, and I want to be careful, um, but certainly the fact that God would use this rod um, cannot be missed. Yeah, Jim, and then we'll close. If, he was saying there's a lot of faith to carry the rod I don't know about you but after I told, Moses, told the Lord I wasn't going uh, if I was God I'd turn it into a cobra again and this time it'd bite glad I'm not the Lord John chapter 3 John the Baptist said it I said it before uh, it's a great verse he Christ must increase I must decrease and we have the great privilege of being used by him don't we well, let me pray. Father, just thank you for these men. Thank you for the opportunity we have to together on a Tuesday morning for just a few minutes around your word and to uh, just engage one another, uh, sharpening one another. As the, the verse says in Proverbs 27, ironing, sharpening iron. 
as we uh, reflect on your word, thank you that you use us. You could have used angels, <laughs> but you've seen fit to use us, and we marvel. <coughs> Lord, be with each of these men today. Guide them, direct them. Thank you so much for the opportunity to um, stay your word with them. In Jesus' name, amen.